0: Sean Sotero is a writer, reporter, and podcaster who has conducted interviews with and covered stories about some of the most notable figures in music, and specifically, hip-hop. His work includes writing and reporting for Complex Media podcast series about significant rap artists, such as Complex Subject Pop Smoke, Infamous The Story of YNW Melly, and Infamous The Takashi 6ix9ine Story. Sean's reporting and writing over the years is the work of someone who has spent significant time following the evolution of music and simultaneously, by proxy, internet culture and how it has helped drive the careers of new music artists, genres and sounds.
1: Part of the exciting thing about covering music now is like there's all sorts of stuff that is affecting the way music is consumed and sold and distributed that is happening very quickly.
0: But before working in the writing and podcasting space, Sean was a musician who found a gateway into reporting while pursuing his interest in music culture.
1: All of a sudden, circa like late 2009, I get involved in this website that at first was called Rap Exegesis. They ended up changing the name to Rap Genius. That was my hobby, being on email threads with like a handful of people trying to figure out how to annotate songs, break down lyrics, whatever, what should be acceptable, what shouldn't in this context, and how do you get people part
0: of it. In this episode, Sean and I discuss his approach to pivoting into the writing, reporting, and podcasting space. We also discuss his approach to podcasting and music journalism, interviewing subjects, and finding the story when creating long-form podcasts. He then explains the tools that he has picked up over the years of music journalism that enables him to write for shows while delving into the work he has done for complex media. That's all coming up in a moment. From the New York City Center for Media Education, this is CME Presents, where we explore how the digital stories and media that we watch, listen to, and experience are created. I'm Jacob, and this is a conversation with Sean Citero. John Cetera, thanks for being here.
1: Thank you, Jacob. I'm very happy to be here.
0: How are you feeling?
1: I'm doing good. Yeah. It is, for listeners, Probably not early for most people, but, you know, early for us, you know, writer, artistic type, 1030-ish in the morning in midtown Manhattan. We're torturing
0: you. That's what's happening here. Given that, I'm doing okay, yeah. I'd like to apologize. (laughs) The last few days, I was really delving through a lot of your work. Uh Uh, (laughs) Uh-oh. It's great. Throughout your career, has your approach to journalism and reporting changed as the Internet morphs so quickly and how artists get their sound out there or their music out there? rapidly evolves as the internet evolves. How do you, as a reporter and writer, cover that? Do you go by the same rules you did on day one when you started in this field? Or is this something that you're constantly asking yourself when you're thinking about coverage or writing a narrative that, you know, is so deeply entwined with the internet?
1: It's a mix of stuff. I try to get all angles of everything if I'm if I'm looking at something, try to think about Technology in sort of a a holistic way, I guess, like try to, as much as I can, pull judgment away and see stuff as it exists. Doing things publicly and doing things to get attention becomes the reason for stuff. Something's not real until it's on social media. Right. Right. Whether it's taking someone's watch or robbing someone a couple blocks from where we are right now in the middle of Times Square, right? Nothing is real until it's on social media. That's something you sort of have to to grapple with because you know, if you sort of lived your young years prior to that, you're kind of not a native to that way of thinking. Mm. So, you know, to out myself, right? That didn't <laughs> come along till I was, you know, a young adult. So, I've had to kind of really get into that and, and try and understand it and not be dismissive of it, not be like, oh, stupid kids brainwashed <laughs> by the Internet or whatever. Right. Like really
0: yelling on your digital. Lawn. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly.
1: Right. And and try to try to think about why that is. Right. What that means and, you know, what it means to to send a message that way and why it's important. And that doesn't mean be uncritical. Right. But it means take it seriously. So I think Part of the exciting thing about covering music now is like there's all sorts of stuff that is affecting the way music is consumed and sold and distributed that is happening very quickly, right? Like Mm. the other day, you know, I published something about sped up songs on TikTok, right? And that was a very strange phenomenon that I sort of knew existed, but knew very little about before I sort of delved into it. And... Underneath that is kind of a whole ecosystem of like why would you do that? Why would you take a song and speed it up, you know, 17% or whatever and then put it on YouTube, right? But labels are doing this over and over again. Then they're making whole sort of playlists that they're trying to disguise are from the record labels, but they really are of sped up songs, right? And so why why is that a viable way to sell music? And it sort of goes back to virality and the nature of TikTok and all this stuff, but like they're they're constantly things like that sort of popping up that are, are interesting to make this a fascinating time to kind of be in the world.
0: It feels like simultaneously while you're covering hip hop and rap culture, you're sort of tracing the evolution of the internet and how it's really utilized in creative ways to get people's music and content out to an audience. Mm-hmm. When you're working as a reporter, journalist, writer, is it helpful in terms to think about yourself also covering how the internet evolves and changes? Do you frame it in that way ever? Because it really feels like this very important component. In some ways, you can't have one without the other when you look at contemporary culture and certainly hip hop culture. Mm
1: -hmm. Great question. And the answer is no, I don't have a, a narrative going in my head of like, here's the meta overarching thing that I'm really writing about. Right. It's more story to story. And you know, I hadn't even thought about it in that way until you mentioned it just now. But like, if you look at the podcast that I worked on about y Melly, so much of that is about how he, as a kid, before he really broke out, got what his friends called Facebook famous from a combination of making songs and kind of being a personality on social media in right. his little community of a couple towns in Florida. He was comparatively well known for that. And, and all his friends use this term Facebook famous it is a story about social media as much as it's a story about music or, you know, jealousy within a crew or whatever. And, you know, same with Takashi, right? He got famous via Instagram and always being on everyone's Explore page all the time. And I think, you know, I wasn't quite able to get too deeply into exactly the mechanics of how that happened. I wish I could. Maybe someday that will be sort of fully out there. You don't kind of think of these things at the time, or I don't. Mm. It's it's more like, You know, you go story to story and what's interesting and what's notable and what's in this Venn diagram of stuff you're interested in and stuff you think the audience might like. Because of the times, because of maybe the nature of the stuff I think about or I'm interested in, themes come out, I guess is is how I would say it.
0: I want to rewind for a moment before we go forward and talk more about the podcasts you've worked on, such as the Takashi one you mentioned If we rewind back to a previous era, Mm -hmm. Sean Sotero, before Sean Sotero was the journalist. Sorry, I'm talking about you as if you're not here. (laughs) (laughs) You are certainly here in front of me. Sean Sotero being you. Yes, was a musician. You went to Berkeley School d- of Music. I
1: did. I did.
0: Guilty. <laughs> is that something you don't want people to know? No, You're like no. Cut it from the tape. Yeah, I cut it out. <laughs> what is the point where you go from Sean, the musician, to Sean, the reporter? And how does your music background inform what you are bound to do in the future?
1: There's not one day I woke up and said, oh, I was this one thing and now I'm the other thing. It was gradual. Sure. What what I mean by that is I was a musician. I had grown up doing some journalism, you know, in high school, college, whatever, of entertainment journalism and things like that. And then that kind of dropped off as I got deeper into being a musician.
0: As you were simultaneously doing music and writing, were you a session musician
1: it was a mix of stuff, right? Yeah. I would say, like, you know, there was some touring, definitely. There was some session stuff. There was, you know, playing gigs with people. By the end, it was a lot more teaching than anything else, mm. you know, because that was more steady. It's a mix. Being a musician in New York, as I'm sure you can imagine, is, uh, you know... Hell. It's, <laughs> it's tough. It's a very precarious thing. Sure. And... You know, you need to do all sorts of stuff. I mean, there could be a whole separate podcast on uh, weird gigs I've taken over the years. Yeah,
0: that's episode two of this. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Well, we'll get into
1: that later. All of a sudden, circa like late 2009, I get involved in this website that at first was called Rap Exegesis. No one knew what an exegesis was, so they ended up changing the name to Rap Genius.
0: That's a bit more friendly to the air when you're trying to figure out what you're doing there.
1: Right. And I was basically the first person outside of the founders and their their sort of college buddies to really get involved. So I was there very much from the beginning. And that was my hobby, right? Was being on email threads with like a handful of people trying to figure out how to annotate songs, break down lyrics, whatever. What should be acceptable? What shouldn't in this context? And how do you
0: get people part of it? So I understand the trajectory here. Yeah. You know people who know people who are working at this site.
1: They got one piece of press very early on, and it was a tiny, tiny mention on literally the last page of New York Magazine (laughs) on their their approval matrix. And so I saw that and checked the site out, and it really matched up with something about how I had begun to think about rap lyrics, which is to say they are so referential, Hmm. right? And I had begun... Begun to think about those references in my head almost as if they were hyperlinks, right? Jay-Z raps something and he's sort of quoting or interpolating a Rakim lyric. So you jump there. Or he's quoting Snoop Dogg, who is in turn quoting the DOC, who is in turn referencing an old cool Mo D record. In my head, you know, it's like almost like one is linking to the other. So when I saw that literally realized on the Internet as actual hyperlinks, I was like, okay, well, I got to see what this is about. Yeah, the
0: light bulb goes off.
1: Yeah, exactly. So I became very involved. And after a few years, my hobby turned into a job when they got PC money, which was shocking and felt like winning the lottery.
0: You were like, wait, I would just do this for free. Right, I was yeah. doing it for free for a couple <laughs>
1: of years, right? And then...
0: So you were working for them at that point, but it's like not really working for right. them. Right, it was yeah. like,
1: you know, it wouldn't pay, you know? Yeah. It was like doing stuff for the site as, you know, one of the initial
0: handful of people who was really doing stuff. Is part of the work you're doing breaking down lyrics yeah, and explaining them? a lot
1: of it was annotating lyrics. I hesitate to say explaining exactly because mm. the idea is not to be like, when the person uses this slang, they mean that sure. right? the, the idea is not to rephrase. The idea was to like provide context and explain references and things like that. Trying to keep things on that side of the fence, whatever. So that all of a sudden this became my full time job for a couple of years. And by the time that ride was over, I knew so many people in that world that I was like, OK, well, let me just keep doing this and ended up kept writing and kept writing and kept doing stuff and then landed, you know, contributed to Forbes, did a bunch of freelance writing, ended up at Complex. And it just became that I got more and more stuff on the writing side and fewer and fewer gigs playing or on the teaching side of music or whatever.
0: One thing I want to talk about that seems really interesting in the context of your trajectory, but also just the internet that we're talking about that evolves and morphs is this podcast, The Cypher, mm-hmm. that you did where you interview very seminal figures in, mm-hmm. in rap. This is while you're working at Genius before you go to Complex and, and all these other yes. places.
1: Yeah, So it started as kind of a function of being at Genius, right? Mm-hmm. I interviewed one of my favorite rappers in the world, Gene Grey. I had connected with her management at the time and, and set up an interview The original intention of this interview was to cut it up and use it as annotations on lyrics on site. But it went really, really well.
0: What does well mean in this context?
1: Well means that she got asked questions that she doesn't normally get asked and was very enthusiastic and forthcoming about answering them. Mm. Right. One of the reasons the cipher worked is it is shockingly rare for rappers, hip hop artists, whatever, to get asked about their work as opposed to the narratives around their work or things that happen in their careers or that one time they bumped into Jay-Z in an elevator.
0: Right, the salacious stuff. Right. So you're saying it's more about their process.
1: It's more about the process. It's more about like specifics of their work, things of that nature. And Gene reacted very enthusiastically to that. We had what I thought was an excellent conversation, you know, delving into her art. We had this 45 minute long conversation. I believe it was my now wife's idea. She said, you know, release it as a podcast. And I said, of course, what's a podcast?
0: In this era when Genius was first getting started, I imagine the podcast landscape was not saturated the way it is now.
1: It was not. This was, you know, 2012 or so. And the hip hop podcast, like you could count them on one hand and have a few fingers left over. Yeah. You know, it was Reggie, I think, was on the air by then. Combat Jack, uh, R.I.P. Juan Epstein, which was, you know, Peter Rosenberg and Cypher Sounds. Maybe one or two others, but not anywhere near the the zillions there are today. So, you know, I said, what's a podcast?
0: Step one, let's Step define one, what a podcast yeah. is. I
1: talked to one of my tech-savvy friends, shout out to Arthur, and mm. he helped me get it on uh, iTunes, rather. Children, this was before Apple Podcasts. It was, it was called iTunes back then. And then it just kind of kept going. And it was, it was in some ways sort of a, an odd fit in Genius in that the whole idea was to get people to kind of break down lyrics using the website. So talking to them on a microphone was a, a little bit of an odd duck in that context
0: that first conversation you had that kind of lit the fuse, that was just placed on the Genius website as this one-off sort of conversation. I
1: think the order went, initially it lived there as a transcript on their like blog that you now only can find if you super duper dig, right? Yeah,
0: so we don't even have the audio from it. It's just the transcript.
1: I ended up using it as the first episode of the podcast. So the, the audio still lives. So, you know, I started the podcast. A friend, a bandmate at the time, sort of help out with the technical stuff. A few episodes in, I got my friend Josh, who I grew up with, to produce the show, and he stuck around till the end and became a key voice the other half of the show, basically. Especially once I left Genius in 2014, we decided to change the name to The Cypher and continue the show. It really became at that point what I think people remember it as, right? We changed the format a little bit, added audio clips, were able to take a little more time producing
0: it and
1: You know, he was able to really do his thing. We were able to take more time with it and make it, I think, the show that some people remember when they think about it now.
0: In an era where there aren't podcasts everywhere, how you even plan on launching something like that? Is it basically just, well, we're putting it on iTunes and the internet's so open that some people will find it?
1: At that point, you know, we had Genius, right? So we could promote it on Genius itself, on like the the homepage Mm. and whatever and say, hey, Rap Genius now has a podcast. Here it is. Check it out. So that served as the initial promotion, really, and then built from there and built a, a little bit of momentum after a while. And, you know, we'd get some press and some shout outs and things like that. And I will say the other podcast, particularly, you know, Combat Jack, Reggie O'Say, was always very supportive. He was a guest very early on. He would occasionally shout out the show on his show, things of that nature. It was, you know, a, a sort of small rap podcast world. And we were sort of the, the little guys of the bunch. But I didn't view anyone else as a competitor like everyone's very friendly it's cool it's it's been good to hear sort of the the dna of the show live on other places i know a lot of other shows that are out there i know because i've talked to the hosts or the producers you know were fans of the show and in some cases like people who worked on the show in the later years helping to edit and things like that have gone on to produce other rap podcasts mm. and so like you can sort of hear a direct lineage in a, in a good way
0: the end of the day i think that's the most you can hope for history that people can reference yeah. and use in the future and go back to
1: i always wanted it to be evergreen mm. you know that was always in my head like some people were on the show two times or more but i always had it in my head that this is the first and last time i'm going to talk to you let's build a record that will be useful to people if they want to research in 10 years 20 years 50 years whatever i hope we accomplish that with everyone from Vontae Coleman to Johnny Rotten.
0: To that point, what you said, that was your goal. It, it lives up to what your goals were. It definitely serves as this great catalog for, you know, a certain point in time. I'm wondering, from a technical side, you started as a reporter who wrote words. Mm-hmm. How do you transition to all of a sudden... Interviewing all these important figures in music culture. Is that, I feel like a jump, or at that point, have you cultivated so many skills from just pounding away at the keyboard that that feels inherent in the work that you do as you start using your voice instead of just your fingers and your brain? Your brain's important. It was
1: sort of simultaneous, right? In that, like, genius was my first real job in journalism, and it was a bit of a hybrid. There was some writing, but a lot of it was just sitting down with artists and Talking to them, and suggesting lyrics for them to break down, getting them to work through their website, things of that nature, it wasn't exactly on camera, but it wasn't exactly you know pounding away on a screen either. So when I started interviewing more, it was something closer to that, right It was something closer to in some ways what I'd already been doing, helping out on sort of the artist relations side of genius so it was a bit of, a bit of a mix like I got in it early and technologically, as you know, as we're speaking in a very nice podcast studio, yes. it was a lot of trial and error. The first number of episodes of the Cypher are recorded with loves, which oh, interesting. don't sound great, <laughs> you know, but Capture Sound. And they were what we had in the office. And also someone was videotaping as well. I wish I knew where those tapes were.
0: Oh, man, you got to uh, find them.
1: Yeah. So that's why we're using loves, And there was that. Right. Of not having to bug people about mic technique and just kind of letting them do their thing and having conversations that way for a long time. And then once we went on our own, Josh, on the production side, was very into trying to figure out ways to make things sound good, given our limitations. We did most of the shows at his apartment, which is a bit north of here, on a very big avenue in Manhattan, facing a very big window.
0: Lots of sound effects.
1: Yeah, exactly. So he was always tinkering around with how can we make stuff sound good, given these limitations, Mm. you know? And so he came up with the green box that you can see in a lot of photos, where basically got a small box and filled it with soundproofing and stuck the microphone in it. And it was a genius sort of way to do what you could with the limitations of not being in a studio. Sometimes he couldn't make it and I would have to go to an artist's hotel or restaurant or whatever, record on my own. And so I I got comfortable with that. The audio side of it was a learning process, right? Learning to use, you know, the Zoom recorders and things of that nature, you know, learning to, especially if I was there on my own balance between monitoring the technical levels of the recording and trying to keep my head in the game of the interview, which took a a certain amount of getting used to.
0: But it it seems the impression I get from a interview standpoint, you had gradually built up your skills as an interviewer. So you weren't nervous the night before staring at the ceiling being like, how am I going to interview this important music figure? Yeah, I mean,
1: you do anything. In my experience, the way it has worked for me is it was similar to stage fright if you perform one show you're going to be nervous before it if you perform 50 shows 100 shows after a while your body just won't let you get nervous yeah and it's not because you're such a brave person right it's just your body gets used to it and i think similarly it was similar with interviewing now Was I nervous 10 minutes before the person walked into the room? You know, a lot of times, absolutely. But in the interview itself, after a while, that muscle memory kicks in, right? And you can kind of get to business. Part of it also for me was trying to be as prepared as possible. That was a way I battled my nerves, right? Was just being like, okay, I've read as much as I could about this subject. I've engaged with as much of their art or their life or whatever, depending on the person, as I could. I know everything that I've had time to learn. I've come up with the questions that are the most interesting to me based on all that information. I've done the best I can. Let's go.
0: You have faith in the process at that point. What else can you do? What else can you do? Yeah, Yeah. it's
1: kind of like I I did everything I could. You know, I I researched until I ran out of time. So let's go.
0: I imagine in some ways, the Cypher, it would have to prepare you for your future assignments and work. We referenced earlier excellent reporting you did on various longer form narrative podcasts for complex media. Mm -hmm. How is the Cypher helping you, if at all, to ready yourself to work on these longer form projects that take place over the course of many episodes where you're interviewing so many people who are linked to these artists' stories?
1: So there's a couple things there. One is the actual act of interviewing, right? You do it enough times, you get used to it. You learn how to prepare for an interview. You learn how to look up stuff about people.
0: How do you prepare for an interview?
1: Research is for me, number one, Mm -hmm. right? Trying to, like I said, find out as much about the person as possible think about what you want. And and interviewing for a narrative podcast is different than interviewing for an always-on show. If you're interviewing for a narrative podcast, you often have very specific stuff you want someone to address. And so you maybe want some tangents, but you can't get sort of too far out there. And that's a little different than an always-on thing where it's very much like, you're a little more inclined to kind of ride the waves. Yeah. And that took me a while to learn. I think doing a lot of interviews for the Cypher definitely helped in terms of preparation and in terms of actually interviewing people. Research helped learning how to dig up stuff on people and find, you know, the quarters of the internet that maybe they've forgotten about. I always like to say, you know, the the interesting stuff is page eight of the Google search, this online radio interview that someone gave eight years ago and completely <laughs> forgot about in minute 43 of that is going to be the interesting thing.
0: Do you subscribe to this idea that even if you have a supposedly very pointed story you're covering, say, for one of these longer form podcasts Mm. you did for Complex, where you're going in with a specific narrative in mind, it's helpful to have as much information about this artist or person that may not even pertain to the narrative, just so you have an understanding of them?
1: For sure. For you have an understanding of them so that you can make small talks, so that you can show that you appreciate them. and not just that they know famous person X. That goes an awful long way and is, and is important. Even writing intros every week for the Cypher helped when it eventually came time to write scripts and work with hosts to write scripts for stuff. Just having a general interest in podcasting helped in making a show mm. was really the thing that drove me to want to be involved with this in the, in the first place. I would say all of those things helped in making the transition to narrative podcasting when it happened.
0: You speak of this idea of learning as much information about someone so you can speak to them in some ways on a quote unquote human level, not just what can I get from you. It makes me think about this idea of a journalist and reporter often as an outsider. Mm -hmm. In other words, you know, you don't directly exist within the culture you're covering. I don't mean disrespect by that. I mean, it's just kind of inherent to the job unless you're really covering a hyperlocal community you're a part of. Mm-hmm. How do you, as an outsider or whatever you want to call it, enter a world and do so with intent in a respectful way that feels conducive to creating something important or useful for listeners?
1: Great question. I would say it's a lot easier than you might think. If you approach people with respect with showing you've you've done your homework, that you're knowledgeable and interested, and that you're not trying to be something you are not, that will get you there almost all of the time. And, you know, sometimes you should face skepticism, right? Like, mm. you know, you should be questioned, what are you doing here? Whether it's, you know, because I'm covering SoundCloud rap or I'm covering a, a small town in Florida and, and goings on in there that may have turned violent, or just in general, the issue of being a white person dealing with a black music form, right? Like all of these things maybe should be questioned and, you know, sometimes are. And so all of these things, you want to be able to have those conversations pretty much any time should they come up. But I would say, you know, like I said, just kind of trying to be prepared and thorough and respectful and will go an awful long way. And what you realize is people want to tell their story. Hmm. Right. People want to say, I was there. I had a role in this. Here's what happened. You might not know this, but this thing you know about, I was there at the center of it. I learned this years ago from an incredible artist, visual artist named Say Adams. And Say, you know, New York guy through and through, right? He's in Style Wars, for God's sakes, as a a kid, right? Goes back that far with uh, graffiti and and things of that nature. So that's
0: his main medium.
1: Yeah. I mean, Mm -hmm. now he he does collage and things like that, but kind of came up as a street art, graffiti art, whatever you want to call it, right? He was and is very close with the Beastie Boys. And he was kind of the one who hit me to this idea that there's always someone else in the room. If you want to talk about a moment involving a star, Someone else was there when the when the song was getting made, when the video was getting shot, when the big thing happened. There was someone else there. And they might have a different or clearer memory of it than the ostensibly central figure. So find those people. And with the narrative shows, two cases, and in the case of Takashi and, and Y.W. Melly, our central figures were incarcerated almost the whole time. We were making the shows, or, you know, in, in the case of Melly, literally the whole time, case of Takashi, basically, I think the whole time we were making the show, more or less. In one case, in the case of Pop Smoke, he, he had been killed. So you can't get to your central figure. So you have to find who else was in the room. Right. That ended up being a big part of these shows.
0: Speaking about these shows, I get the impression that you were really involved on the ground floor in building these narrative podcasts and that division at Complex. Mm-hmm. What is the process like going in and building a show that requires so much complexity in terms of reporting and deciding which narratives to follow and build on?
1: You know, shout out to the the team on that, right? We, it was myself and, and my partner on the show, Shiva, we were sort of the staff members who were kind of the core
0: people on all of the shows. And you're writing at Complex before you start. Yes. Yeah, it
1: was a staff writer there before we started the shows. She very much was the other half of this, right? We would brainstorm on stuff together. And we also made sure to get an experienced script editor in there. And in all of the shows, we had experienced script editors who would come in and look at drafts and give us advice and talk through story points with us and all of that stuff. That was important as well. Having someone you can go to to say, here's a very rough draft of episode one. Come back to me and tear it apart. Having good people on our corner was integral to that, but also trying to get all angles of the story, learning as much as you can before you try to sit down and plot out, you know, what's going to happen in episode one, what's going to
0: happen in episode two.
1: Time permitting, know sort of as much as you can going into it.
0: When you're first pitching the first podcast series to Complex, mm-hmm. that's a Takashi. Takashi st- one was first. Yeah, yep. infamous Takashi Six Nine story. Yeah. Is that a process trying to convince Complex to let you build out this podcast division?
1: I mean, no one thought of it as a division, right? <laughs> right. It was like Shiva had been brought on to to do podcasts at Complex.
0: Okay. So were, that was already happening. So it was
1: already her gig and there were some always on style shows that were happening. But I think they wanted to do narrative. You know, so we had the opportunity to present them with ideas. And at first it was like, okay, you can work on this as long as you're not needed for staff writing stuff. So, you know, divide your time. If you have a story to work on, that takes precedence, but do interviews for the Takashi stuff when you can. Over, you know, number of years that became too difficult, eventually became full time at the at the podcast stuff, right? Because it was sort of like more of that and less of the writing. And eventually it was just like, okay, I'll do a blurb if I have to, but I gotta be over here, you know, all of the time. So they were definitely open to it, which I, I appreciate. And the the Pop Smoke one was very much, we had a, a champion in-house who was like, we are going to do this. I don't know what partner we're going to end up with this. I don't know which big company is eventually going to pay the budget, but we're going to do this. Complex has been very much a part of the Pop Smoke story, interviewed him toward the end and did a whole big story on Brooklyn Drill. And that was the thing that really led into the Pop Smoke podcast was like Complex had done very thorough coverage of the musical scene that Pop was sort of set to be the breakout star of when he died.
0: There's already a vast understanding of that space. Yeah. Yeah. So
1: they knew that like, okay, this is something that could turn into a narrative show and, and got behind it.
0: When you first start and choose the Takashi story as the first one, mm-hmm. you know, you're know you really putting out there the identity of the work you do in the narrative podcast format. Was it a very specific decision to choose the Takashi story just because it was the larger-than-life story at the time? And I think back to the era when Takashi was at his height, at least in America, and it really felt like he was taking over the Internet. There's so yeah. much talk about him. So what was the decision to start with? I mean, we had, we
1: had a couple ideas. I've long mm-hmm. since forgotten what the other were. <laughs> right. others were. But that was the one that people gravitated to, I believe, as I, w- I was already covering the court case anyway. Mm. At that time, you know, I'd already been to the arraignment and things of that nature. So, you know, I'd gotten to know, you know, a few of the of the players on the legal side. So it kind of made sense. Right. And it was good because I could go to court and cover stuff for my ostensible day job as staff writer and write up uh, court hearings and use that overall knowledge to bring into the podcast and and eventually the book.
0: What is the process like for writing that story? Because one of the things about all of these podcasts that you've done for conflicts is there are so many people that you speak to that help flesh out the identity of the artist, the story their socioeconomic background, the politics surrounding this case. It's, of course, you know, about a music artist, but these series are about so much more than that. When you're thinking about this huge database of people you could speak to, and some people, I imagine, don't even know who they are yet or that you could speak to them, what's the process like of building these narratives? Do you write out the ideal script of each episode and then fill in the blanks, or is it a different process altogether?
1: Try to do interviews first. Depending on time, maybe you get to a point where you're like, okay, here are big strokes. What I think is going to happen in each episode. Very broad strokes. Those often end up changing dramatically. Mm -hmm. But, you know, episode one, their childhood. Right. And episode two, whatever and so forth. But the way it has worked for me is I don't begin writing a script until we have done all of the relevant interviews and we know which interview clips best address the subject of the episode and we've already chosen them. The tape is what's important. And so you want to make sure you have the best possible tape before you start writing the script. That is really the key thing.
0: As you decide who to interview, is it more a question of who don't we interview? In other words, are you just trying to interview as many people as possible to understand what this story really is before you delve into what the final tape will be?
1: It's a mix. I always try to shoot wide. At the same time, you don't have three years. So, you know, you want to be somewhat strategic and say, "Okay, well, I want the childhood friend. So it's a a mix of trying to shoot wide and get as many people as you can who are relevant, trying to be somewhat targeted Mm -hmm. and also just who wants to talk. Right. You know, certainly there are always people you can't get. You want people from kind of a wide variety of angles of the thing, right? And some of the best people are going to be surprising. For Pop Smoke, we got someone who was at his church that he grew up in, ended up providing a lot of color. Or we had an ex-girlfriend who we ended up giving a, a whole episode to, you know, the story of their relationship that provided like a whole sort of different angle on him. So trying to go wide really helps. And the shows we did, we had a year or whatever to do the thing, and that ended up giving us time to do dozens of interviews.
0: I'm curious about operating with intent. You just mentioned This one episode in the Pop Smoke series, a lot of that episode was Mm -hmm. with the girlfriend. I found that to be one of the most emotional episodes in all the series you did. Absolutely. As you're thinking about this narrative you're constructing, are you thinking about how, say, for example, this seemingly one-off episode fits into the entire narrative? Or are you saying, you know what, this is just powerful, so let's utilize these interviews to the fullest?
1: We did not go into that interview thinking that was going to be 90% of an episode. Yeah, She was someone we were interviewing. We interviewed dozens of people. But it was very special and very emotional and I think also served the purpose of giving a different perspective on this guy. You know, he grew up and then he had this issue and here's the whole gang setup, and he's a star and things are crazy. And so... It was an emotional interview and it sort of served a storytelling purpose of kind of giving another perspective. And I I think all of those things went into deciding to make it a standalone episode, but it was definitely not the intention. You know, we didn't go into it thinking, oh, we're going to get so much stuff out of this one person. But she was very open and... I'm extremely grateful for that.
0: Yeah. As we speak about this idea of sort of building empathy for artists, as you speak to people who are close to them and they frame this world, paints a larger portrait of growing up in life and, and navigating these challenges of making money, making a career, being ingrained in certain cultures. It makes me think a lot about what you said earlier, this idea that in a current era, A lot of artists are kind of their own PR team. Mm -hmm. You said, why would they, you know, initially talk to a media outlet when they can say, you know, go on TikTok, Instagram Live, whatever, and speak directly to their audience? Mm -hmm. Is there still space to tell these nuanced stories that really delves into the people behind the myths? A lot of times now I see contemporary music coverage. You know, there's like channels like No Jumper Mm -hmm. or Vlad TV that it interviews the artists maybe, but we don't hear from the people living on their block. We don't hear from their family necessarily. So there's this one person who's myth-making. There's no Mm -hmm. fact-checking. And I think as a result, it's possible that we kind of forget about the humanity behind this person. And in a lot of ways, listening to these podcasts felt useful because the humanity of a person sort of links to these other social issues and ideas that the the podcast mm-hmm. investigates it just makes me think I see a lot of traditional media outlets mm-hmm. downsizing. Do you see there's still spaces to tell these complex stories?
1: I mean, look, media is in a, a tough space. I don't want to deny that. Right. There have been layoffs in a lot of places. At the same time, there are a lot of great writers out now who are working, both young and veteran, who are doing fantastic things in interviews, in reported spaces, in essays, and dealing with big issues politically, business-wise, artistically. So there's still stuff out there, for sure. I think big picture-wise, yes, it is a very difficult time and stuff is contracting. I hope that doesn't continue, right? But new ways of Thinking and talking about this will continue to bubble up and probably are bubbling up in in ways that are small right now, but will grow over time. Narrative podcasting as a whole, I think, is a great way of telling this stuff. I think people will, will continue to do that. The documentary space also, you know, there's involvement in that right now. And I think that can be a great method of trying to tell long form stories. There's room for all of it. There's room for the artist-made stuff. There's room for stuff that has a more sort of traditionally journalistic approach. Hopefully, there's there's room for all of it.
0: And I certainly wouldn't want to frame it as a negative thing that artists have control over their own narratives, because for many years, you know, they had less control over their own narratives. What you're saying, there's room for both in the sense that we can't always just trust what one person tells us about themselves. And sometimes as we learn in some of the podcasts you report for, there's repercussions when powerful figures in culture do what they do. Mm -hmm. Oh, I just appreciated the amount of reporting that went into these stories that really provided and aimed to provide a more fleshed out version of stories we heard via interviews. Thank
1: you. And and part yeah. of that, I mean, look, part of that goes back to what I was saying about preparing for individual interviews in the Cypher, where, you know, I did it till I ran out of time. And it was a way of making sure that I felt like I was prepared. And here, you know, with these on a, on a larger scale, it's like, well, I don't want to miss something or I don't want to miss some important element of the story. Let's talk to as many people as possible to really get the full scope of this thing you know, till we run out of time and got to start actually making the thing.
0: You talk a lot about how there are a lot of court cases in in relation to some of these figures you covered. What's the process like covering those and then digesting the information and infusing it into these stories? I mean, imagine you're sitting through a lot of arduous days Mm -hmm. or or cases.
1: Court stuff is, is its own little universe. And when you're there, stuff can seem like the most important thing in the world. So it helps to pull back and have other people on your team to say, look, you know, this might be interesting in the context of this court case, but you're not talking just about this one case, right? You're talking about this story as a whole. So you don't need to get into this particular legal battle. At the same time, it was helpful for a lot of this time to be writing day-to-day journalism because I could digest things as they happened and sort of figure out the big points and actually be there and see how stuff was playing out over time. It's a mix. I'm glad that I had the whole scope of, you know, in in particular with the Takashi case, of watching every court hearing I could get to. And I think that gave me a, a great understanding of the whole situation. At the same time, you know, also, I'm glad I had people around me baking the show to tell me, look, you don't need to include everything that happened in court. That's not what this is about.
0: (laughs) As a writer too, I mean, you're doing a lot of multitasking that my hope is a lot of people understand and appreciate because it's no small order in the Mm -hmm. sense that you're going to court cases, you're reporting on things that are transpiring in real time and kind of choosing the main points to put in these episodes later. But simultaneously, you're writing. For a particular voice, for example, in the Takashi Six Nine podcast, you're writing for, for Angie. A, yeah, yeah esteemed radio personality yeah. Angie Martinez. A lot of people, especially from New York, know who this person yeah. is. She's well, iconic.
1: Well, let's let's be clear that like this was done in in collaboration. And what I mean by that is like often you know she would look at the scripts and she would say I wouldn't say it that way mm. or I can't say it that way or whatever, and you know we would work together to get it to be her. That was the case with her, with the case with Ace Hood, and especially with Punch, who who hosted the Pop Smoke show. Right. Uh, with Punch, it was a, a very collaborative process and that he would often say, look, I can't talk about it this way. And just kind of like in the recording session, work with us and say a bunch of stuff. And we would work together to sort of pare it down into a, a usable section for the script.
0: So you're in real time in the voice booth or wherever you're recording the voiceovers, brainstorming and thinking about ways to adjust the script as they're recording it.
1: We'd come up with something and some of it they would have no problem with. Some of it they would say, I wouldn't, let's rephrase it. And some of it they say, look, I, you know, this is not an authentic way of talking about this issue. Let's, you know, we rework the whole section. It completely varied. One other thing that we did was a lot of the scripts were informed by conversations with the hosts. We would get on the phone with the hosts and say, talk with them about elements of the story. Often we would take stuff verbatim from those conversations and put them in the script. That's another part of it, too, is like making sure, you know, in advance what they think about different sections and how they would talk about it and mm. and all of that. Like this was especially the case with Ace Hood in the Melly show. He saw a lot of parallels to his story and Melly's. And so, you know, we said, let's talk about that. What parallels do you actually see? And then, you know, you you try to sort of boil them down and put them in sort of a more concise but still natural sounding form.
0: What I'm hearing, and correct me if I'm wrong, is it feels like there's a huge priority of projecting a feeling of authenticity.
1: Yeah. I mean, look, the last thing you want is it sounding like someone's reading off a paper and doing it for a check, right? We chose these hosts for a reason. All, all of them because of what we viewed as their connection to the story, because of who they are, their histories. You want to get that across, right? Why did we choose this person and not someone else?
0: I mean, we kind of cover this, but how do you decide to use CERN hosts for the job? Why was, besides her being this great iconic person, Angie Martinez, why was she the one who would Mm -hmm. tell the Takashi 6ix9ine story?
1: Angie was our first choice. Mm -hmm. You know, when we thought about hosts, she was the first name on the list. And luckily, I am very grateful that she agreed to do it. She interviewed him. Not that many people
0: did. So she had a connection. So she
1: had a a connection to the story. As it it turned out, her interview got mentioned in court. Wasn't a deciding factor, but didn't hurt. You know, she obviously has this extensive legendary run as a radio DJ and a performer in New
0: York. You mentioned, you know, prior to working for Complex, you had done podcasts, but it was a very different format of more interview-based, less narrative. Right. In addition to what you mentioned, where you're speaking to the host to kind of cultivate a voice. Mm -hmm. What else are you learning about writing for a narrator or a host? Where do you even start from if you haven't done this before?
1: Oh, my God. You start with this book, <laughs> Out on the Wire by Jessica Abel. I got this book recommended to me. They said, you got to read this book. And I said, OK. And that really was a, a big step. This one book, great advice on how to write for radio, which obviously is directly transferable to podcasts. It sort of comes out of the like lineage of this American life. There are also just general principles of of writing for The Voice, I think the biggest one is short sentences. It sounds silly, but it's really true. If you write a sentence with two or three clauses and a bunch of commas, by the time you get to the end of it, the listeners are going to forget where you began. Honestly, that can go a long way. It's I believe like it. i think keeping the sentences short. Like, it sounds simple, but it really is a, a good percentage of the game. And, you know, reading stuff out loud, writing something and reading out loud and seeing how it sounds and then doing it again and again and again and... First draft of the first episode of the Takashi thing, we went through a dozen drafts and then maybe, you know, or 15 drafts and maybe by the end it's, you know, you only got to do six. You know, working with great editors, obviously script editors, right?
0: And you very quickly figure out
1: some principles.
0: How do you know when it's getting there, when the voice feels authentic and everyone agrees that this is headed in the right direction or is the right direction?
1: Heavy reliance on other team members and the script editor tell you when you're getting there. And you also know, like, by, by the time you get pretty close, you have made working drafts of the scripts. Mm. You don't enlist the host for that. You, you can, I suppose, but we often waited till things were finalized to give them to the, the hosts. But you've made working drafts of stuff, usually with the tape in there. So you've sort of heard it. And, you know, that's the, the ultimate test, obviously. So you go, you go from paper drafts to hearing it and then, you know, making adjustments from there. At a certain point, you kind of just got to let it fly.
0: Any approaches you take to ensuring that the narrative stays pointed and there's a trajectory that's clear and the audience can follow it?
1: Having beats set up is very helpful. Like I said, often we would have rough outlines of what's going on in each episode before we sat down to write it. Uh, That was usually great going in, like, knowing, okay, you know, each of the episodes is going to cover X topic. For the Takashi one, which was our first time, There was definitely one day where Shiva and I went into a tiny little office and wrote down every event we knew happened on a post-it and put them all on a wall in order and just looked at it and tried to figure out what's important here and what should we include. So, you know, generally there, there should be some kind of culling of that nature. It's very much a learn by doing thing. I think you kind of got to jump into the middle of it and see what happens.
0: Yeah. And then it becomes more of an impulse at a certain point. Right. At,
1: at a certain point, you've lived with the story so long that you just kind of know what's important, I would say. You just, you know, are kind of living and reporting in things and, and talking to people over and over. When you tell your friends at the dinner party what you're working on, what comes out, what's the summer you give them, what are the parts where you're like, man, you are not going to believe this. You do that enough and and stuff tends to sort of sort itself out. At least that's been my experience.
0: Looking back on the series you did for Complex, are there specific moments that strike you this was a really good moment or a really good piece or segment?
1: To shout out my partners on this for the Melly one, Shiva and our associate producer, Misha, actually went down to Florida, went down to Melly's hometown and met a bunch of People in his circle, people who were friends with him, people who were friends with his now deceased group members, and really got a sense of what life was like in that town. That was them, right? They took that trip. They got the audio. They recreated the drive that got taken that day. Both versions, the version that Melly's co-defendant says he took and the version the state says they took. I think that stuff was really invaluable in in adding texture and, and depth to the story And it was a joint issue. Like I found the people in Florida and they went down and talked to them. It really was a team effort, but I I, I have to commend that. I think for Takashi, like there are some great characters in there. And I think, you know, definitely we
0: tried to capture
1: some of his friends who maybe were sort of funny or eccentric and got that in there for sure.
0: Is there anything you can speak on that you're working on now, now that we're back in contemporary times, moving away from the complex era yeah, that we just what, discussed. What,
1: what am I doing? Well, I'm teaching at MNN. You, you know, a little the, plug the, there. New, the new generation of podcasters. There you go. Um, which has, you know, been fantastic and inspiring. Doing some freelance writing here and there for different places. We've done some some pieces for OK Player recently and for uh, Grammy.com, the Recording Academy's website. Nice. That have been fun and, you know, interviews and reported pieces and things. So there's there's more of that nature. And some potential bigger projects that are in the early stages that I, I don't want to jinx by mentioning here, but they are hopefully in the works. Let's say that.
0: Keep it quiet so you will them into existence. Exactly. This is just a selfish question for myself, but uh, do you subscribe to the idea that Drake is the greatest hip hop artist ever <laughs> <laughs> just due to the longevity, staying power, how he steals people's sounds, but uses them for commercial success and puts on all these artists?
1: I mean, look, greatest, greatest ever is good question. I will say that I think, I think we will look back at his chart success and just be dumbfounded. Yeah. I had to, for Complex at one point, a couple of years back, go back and look at all of his Hot 100 hits, right? And there was a stretch of five years, seven years, something like that, where he had a song in the Hot 100 every week. was nuts. It, it, It hadn't happened before. And I don't know if it will happen. I mean, maybe it'll happen again, but I, I, I would be shocked. And it was this period where, you know, if it wasn't one of his songs, it was a guest appearance or it was this or it was that like it had a song in the chart every week for multiple years.
0: It's crazy. Absolutely
1: insane. Uh, I think, you know, if I were to make a list of my, you know, top five MCs, he would not be on it. Right. Right. But, uh I think you you have to acknowledge that he commercially has done just unprecedented things. Uh and I think your 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 point about, you know, sort of jokingly saying he takes people <laughs> sounds to make some commercial, you know, he's getting on the right remix and, you know, pushing it to the next level. He also has, you know, helped careers that way, right? Or sometimes hindered them, I guess depending <laughs> on who comedy, you ask, right? Comedy. Yeah, sometimes yes, sometimes no. So just a shocking level of success has been kind of wild to see. And, you know, he's sort of taken it all in and... Somehow turned into this this absolute commercial juggernaut. You'll
0: notice I didn't answer your question. No, <laughs> no, that was a good way to bypass the question. I really respect that. <laughs> You're like, if I talk long enough, right. he's gonna forget, forget about the question, which question. I did. Yeah. Yeah. I, I truly yeah. forgot about it. That was excellent work on your part. Yeah. You've I've, learned a lot I've, of tricks. I've
1: seen I've seen enough people give interviews <laughs> that you know I, you know you you give the answer you want to give to the question you were Brick asked. Brick wall. Yeah. That's
0: right. Sean, thanks so much for being here today. I, I've really learned a lot from your work. I love your work, and it's a pleasure.
1: Thank you, Jacob. Uh, this was a pleasure to be here. Uh, happy to be a part of MNN and the Center for Media Education and to be on the show.
0: Oh, and where can people follow you?
1: Find me on social media, on the site formerly known as Twitter. I'm right. at same old Sean, S-H-A-W-N. Instagram, Sean Setaro S-H-A-W-N, S-E-T-A-R-O. So, you know, come find me and say hi.
0: All right. Sick. Thanks so much. All right. Catch take you care. later. From the New York City Center for Media Education, this has been CME Presents. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Music is by Jacob Backer, William Hutchison, and Sean Sparacino. If you like what you hear, please rate, subscribe, and review. And don't forget to check out our website at nyccenterformediaeducation.org for more information about media making and filmmaking classes.